Pastor Brooke. Well, good morning. Um, I am going to do uh, something this morning I haven't done before. So if, if you, it's your first time with us or you haven't been with us for a while, to, I've never done this before. So today's going to be a little bit more like a history lesson. Um, I've had a few of you ask me just about my trip. And, and so instead of uh, re- repeating it, <laughs> there's a lot I'd love to share with you about it. So I'm going to share with you a good portion about it today and how it uh, applies um, to us today and experience a little bit of our church history. So I've never done, it'll be a little bit of a slideshow. I have not too many. I'm not going to uh, spend forever doing this, but I got about 12 or 13 slides and pictures I'm going to show you. Um, but uh, I, I want you to understand a little bit about your church history uh, because that's a big part of the reason uh, why I was in Germany, the, the places that we visited. And so the very first thing I want to ask you um, before we get started, and then we'll begin uh, with a word of prayer, is who is that guy? Don't blurt it out. If you know who that guy is, I'm real curious. Raise your hand. If you know, pretty sure you know who that, okay, Ruby's got her hand up. Anybody else? Don't say, don't say it out loud. Don't say it out loud. Anybody else know who that guy is? And, and, and so I'm just curious, because um, I know some of you have been in this church for a very long time. So, Ruby, who is that? Yes, it is. That is a picture. So, congratulations. Um, She gets it right. That is Alexander Mack. Um, Alexander Mack is known to be the founder of the church that you are in, uh, the original founder of the Church of the Brethren. And so, I'm going to get back to him in just a little bit. I'm going to talk a little bit more about Alexander Mack and, and how all of this church began Uh, But before we do that, I want to begin with a word of prayer. So, Jesus, you are alive. Lord, today, um, even as we celebrated Memorial Day last weekend, this, this morning is going to be a time when we can connect the past to the present. And just as I've shown a picture of a man that many people have never uh, known about, like we know about George Washington or Abraham Lincoln... Um, today, all of these people here sit in a church that this man and a few others began over, over 300 years ago. So now, we often take for granted the freedoms that, that have been fought for us and all those who have gone before us. So today, we will engage your scripture a bit, but in these moments, we're going to learn from our past. And we're going to realize just how big of a privilege we have because of those who have come before us. And so, Lord, open up our eyes, open up our ears, and Lord, may may we take steps forward because we realize those whose shoulders we are standing upon. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I may have introduced you, if you you looked at your newsletter, um, I may have introduced you to another word as well, and that's that word right here, okay? The word is not pietist, it's pietist, all right? How many of you have ever heard that word before? Okay, so pietist, so I gave you a definition right in your uh, newsletter. Pietism was a 17th century religious movement originating in Germany 
in reaction to formalism and intellectualism that stressed Bible study and personal religious experience. So, you have, so just from that, you understand a contrast between a formal, um, emotionless religion versus a very emotional religion and people that could begin to engage the scriptures for themselves. That is pretty good definition of what pietism is, and I'm going to talk to you about pietism in just a little bit. But that is, is, is what that, there's a pretty simple definition of what pietism is. So I want to tell you, uh, I'm going to go through just some pictures uh, uh, from my uh, trip and tell you a little bit about some of the things that we did. So this castle right here, this is the Marburg Castle. This is where all of my class, I went to study. I was gone for two weeks, basically in class for two weeks. Some of my classes were tours. Some of my classes were listening to uh, church professors, or excuse me, uh, pastors and professors at the Marburg University there. It's called the Phillips University in Marburg. But this is the castle in Marburg, and this is where most of my classes were. Now, just to kind of give you a picture, that, that the castle looks pretty neat, and almost, almost all towns or decent-sized cities in Germany have a castle there. Um, we don't have a castle in West Alexandria, in case you're wondering, but, but that's one that, we had, that they have for the castle in Marburg in Germany. So to show you what that castle looked like from afar... Nick will show you the other side. So this is just a picture I got by a river, and you see how that castle all the way at the top of there, it just kind of overlooks the whole city. So that's all neat and beautiful, but daggone it, we had to hike to the top of that castle every day for class. And so, so that got a little bit annoying, but um, it was still really beautiful once we got up there. Now I want to show you something interesting. So you, you're not going to be able to see any of those names on there because it just it's, it's, you're not going to be able to read them anyway. It's all in old German. But those are the names of all of the occupants that had occupied that castle. Um, and the last thing on there, if you look on this, this far right square, the last thing on there is basically uh, Phillips University because now the university owns that castle. Um, we got to spend time with some of the best of the best German students. If you were some of the sharpest students in that university, you could apply to live in that castle and you kind of get special privileges. Um, so that's who we hung out with. We hung out with all of the sharpest students in, in, in that university. But so that last little thing there is, is just saying that the Phillips University occupies that castle. But you notice how there's a space before that. You know, there's just like one little black space in between. That's really interesting because there's an intentional reason why that is there. It's because in the 1930s and 40s, that castle was used to round up all of the Jews in Marburg before they sent them off to ghettos. And so it was one of those things that they did not want to post on the castle, like this is what this castle was used for, for public, but they, they wanted to keep it blank and let, and let people ask questions and be reminded of what took place here as well. Because it's an interesting, the Nazi, uh, Nazism is a real interesting part of Germany's history. Germans are very much ashamed of it of what took place, especially this generation now, um, many of the, the, the generation that participated, that were participated in that have, have died off or pretty close, kind of like our World War II generation. Um, so the younger generation kind of is like angry at what um, Germany did at that time. But there's always that presence that we want to be reminded of what we did. There's shame attached to it, but we need to be reminded of it because it is part of our history. 
So those are kind of the little things, and you see other little things like that all across Germany to remind them of what took place in the 30s and 40s, but to not make it public knowledge that we're excited and happy about, right? So all throughout there, you see other different people who occupied that castle. And so I want to tell you um, what uh, it is memorialized for because it really attaches itself to church history. So maybe you've heard of a guy from 1517 named Martin Luther. How many of you have ever heard of a guy named Martin Luther? Okay. Uh, anybody know what, just, I'm just curious, if I told you it's going to be a little bit more like a history lesson than a sermon this morning. So what is Martin Luther known for? Maybe somebody want to raise their hand and tell me what's Martin Luther primarily known for. Anybody know? Not Martin Luther King Jr., Martin Luther himself. Yes, Nick. Yes. And yeah, on October, um, uh, on October of 1517, Martin Luther tacked his 95 theses uh, to, the, to the door of the Wittenberg Cathedral. We didn't get to go to Wittenberg. It was a significant hike away from where we were. But Martin Luther began at that point um, what is still called today the Protestant Revolution. Um, in those days, the Catholic Church, the Pope was, for lack of a better word, God. <laughs> Um, the Pope dictated what was taught. The Pope dictated what, was, uh, what religion was. And uh, the common people really didn't study the scriptures. They didn't really have much of a relationship with, with God. They just kind of showed up on Sundays. The one big thing that's always attached to the 95 Theses that everybody knows about, that the biggest thing that Martin Luther was upset about, was indulgences. And if you've never heard of indulgences before... Indulgences were a great idea that I think we should try. That if you used to die, but we used to be believed that when people would die, they would go to purgatory, which wasn't heaven, it wasn't hell, but it would be a place in between. All right? But if you would pay for an indulgence, you could you'd have some saints that would pray for you and you could guarantee that your lost one would get to heaven. All right? That's what an indulgence was. So how many of you guys like that idea? Okay. All right, well, because if, if you guys liked it, we could start charging people for them, and it might be a fundraiser as well. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. That was, uh, I don't know how much that's related to indulgence to say truth. I don't know. It could be, I don't think it is, but I could be wrong. So this is just one, one of many, but the top of the list of different things in the Catholic Church that Martin Luther was really, really upset about. And so when Martin Luther began that, he began many discussions and he began a movement of people wanting to do something different with their faith and what the Catholic Church was doing. And Martin Luther was persecuted. He was almost executed, but he actually had people. Um, oh, you put the picture up there. People like Philip, what was called Landgrade Philip or Philip the Magnificent, who actually occupied this castle in Marburg. That is a painting that I took from a picture in there. It's kind of hard to see. But up here on this side is Philip the Magnificent. The front row with the big jacket there is Martin Luther. To his right is a guy named Melanchthon, who was his apprentice. And behind him, the, the shaggy, kind of dorky hairdo, um, is, is Ulrich Zwingli, who was basically the father of Calvinism before John Calvin, and where we actually get some of our Baptist theology today. The reason why that's significant is because both of those guys came to that castle that I was at, and they had this debate during the Reformation era about what communion was. They had a discussion about whether communion was, uh, whether Christ was 
what, what the Catholics do is called transubstantiation. That means that when the priest gets the cup, he transforms it into Jesus' blood. And when he gets the bread or the wafer, he transforms it into Jesus' body himself. And everybody thought this was kind of weird mythological language. And so Martin Luther said that this isn't really happening, but Christ is present in the mix. And Zwingli said that these are actual symbols. So they actually debated this um, in that Marburg castle. It was called the Marburg Colloquy. And so there's another painting that kind of shows that that's there in the castle. There's Martin Luther and Zwingli over here. And you got Philip, the Landgrave Philip, also called Philip the Magnificent. Um, he witnessed this debate. And Philip went with Luther. He was a pretty uh, big proponent of Martin Luther through his time. And so this next picture is the actual throne room where that debate would have taken place. So like there would have been, you know, all throughout history, there would have been kings sitting in there, and that's where they would come and judge. I just thought it was really neat to be in a throne room. And it was really big and really wide. I did like a, pan, um, a, a, a panoramic picture to show you that, that throne room. So before, just leave that image there. Because what was happening between Zwingli and Luther was what, what we call the Reformation movement, okay? So Luther founded a church. Guess what it was called? Yes, how did you know that one? The Lutheran church. And then Zwingli was kind of the father of Calvinism who started a church. And what was it called? No, I just set you up for that one. It was called the Reformed Church, okay? So you had three about the time of the early 1700s. This is where that guy on your bulletin came into play. You had three big churches. You had the Catholic Church. You had the Lutheran Church. And you have the Reformed Church. So um, all three of these were the common churches of the, by the time the early 1700s came around. And in between the Reformation, wars were fought something called the 30 Years' War, where it was basically Catholics versus Protestants. People are having religious wars over whether what should be the state church, the Lutheran church, or the Catholic church, and they're killing each other over these things. And so by the early 1700s, you have what is called caio uh, religio, caio religio, io religio, which basically means that whoever is the ruler of the nation their church, whichever their faith is, let's say Philip Magnificent, he would, this was 1500s, but he would have been a Lutheran. So if he was the ruler of a land, then that whole land, the state church of that land would be Lutheran because Philip the Magnificent was Lutheran. So that's what was taking place in the early 1700s. So depending on what different land you went to, you might have a Catholic area, you may have a, re a re Reformed area, you may have a Lutheran area, and that was the church. You didn't really have a choice. That was the church that you went to. And so you see what's really interesting here is that just for 200 years later, from the 1500s to the early 1700s, what Martin Luther fought for, which was reform from this mechanical religious stuff, 200 years, he's, his people have created a church that was just like uh, the church that he fought against, a new mechanical clergy-driven church structure and so all three of these, the same kind of things that John Calvin fought for, there was just this mechanical church structure in the Catholic Church, in the Lutheran Church, and in the Reformed Church. So all three of these were taking place, and you still see all three of these churches are the predominant churches still to this day in Germany. I'll talk to you a little bit more about state churches. So 
that gets us up to the early 1700s and what in the world was it that pietists wanted to do and Alexander Mack wanted to do. They thought this stuff was ridiculous. They, they, they felt as if this, that once again, the church had become way too mechanical, it had become too formal, and there was no religion of the heart. And so that is another definition for pietist. That's what it means to be a pietist, is to be someone who has a real relationship with God from your heart. Not just something you come and do and observe on Sundays, but a real relationship with God. And see, I haven't got to the conclusion of this, but I wonder if this still applies to today. Because there are some who have an authentic, growing relationship with Christ, and there's just some that just show up on Sundays and pretend. Okay, I'll move on. Now, so what Alexander Mack was wanting to do, he was a miller, and he was watching some of these things happen. And he realized that if he was going to do something different, um, that they were going to be persecuted for it. And so they started having little Bible studies of people, laity, starting to study scriptures for themselves and engage and love God and pray together and sing together. Not in a Reformed church, not in a Lutheran church, not in a Catholic church. Oftentimes there were people like von Hochmann who was attached to the Reformed church who would lead some of these things. But the big question they always faced was, are we going to leave these state churches and do our own thing? And they knew that if they did that, that they would be persecuted for this. They could possibly die for this. And they wouldn't have the same rights and the same privileges that others in these state churches would. And so the next picture, oh man, you can't see it. But that word on top of that sign is S-C-H-W-A-R-Z-E-N-A-U. Schwarzenau. Anybody ever heard of Schwarzenau? Donna, what's Schwarzenau? It's what? Well, it is Schwarzenau, Germany, where, go ahead, the next one's a picture. That is a picture of Schwarzenau. And by the way, that's what the German countryside looks like. In Western Germany, every, all these little towns like West Elick, they're beautiful. They're incredibly well kept, and everything's on a mountain, so there's like layers to every town. But that is Schwarzenau. And what is significant about Schwarzenau is that Alexander Mack, uh, took these first people who were called the way, and most of you don't know this, but many of the, the majority of the people that were with him were women. Women were some of the first pietists because women were not able to be, women weren't given many freedoms at all in church. And so Alexander Mack, they went to this place called the Palatine in Germany. The Palatine was a place that was so destroyed by the Thirty Years' War by people destroying each other, by killing each other over religion, that in Caio Religio was still in effect, but the ruler, I forget what his name was, but the Count of Schwarzenau and the Palatine, his land was so destroyed that he had religious freedom. He was going to accept anyone to come to his land and inhabit it and, and re-inhabitate it um, so that they could begin to repopulate it. And so that's where Alexander Mack took some of his first disciples and the next slide, at that river right there, anybody know what that river is called? The Eater River, yes. This and that dork with his shirt coming out of his vest is where the uh, first brethren were baptized. Right there, right, almost the, many people think it was like actually right at that spot that we were at as well. Um, 
But they were, they were baptized. There were, there were uh, eight people baptized, and somebody anonymously baptized Alexander Max himself. And it is in this spot, that was the official inauguration of and where they begin to call themselves brethren, or they had just begun to call themselves brethren as well. So on that river is basically where all of this began. And what that meant for this for them was that now they were going to be a close-knit community because there was going to be persecution. They had to live together, so they lived together in Schwarzenau and the Palatine, where they were given freedom to live together. But life continued to get harder and harder for them. I want to show you a couple more pictures. So this is the Mack House. This is the Alexander Mack House, which is real close to the Eater River where I was. And the guy with the really sloppy writing at the bottom is where I got West Alexandria Church of the Brethren in the museum at the Mack House. Okay, So anybody could come and sign in that book, and you'll see anybody, brethren, from all across the country, from Germany. There's like logs, but we got, West, we got our church in the log. Okay, So we're officially in the log in Schwarzenau, Germany. Um, but that, that was the Museum of the Mack House. The next thing I want to show you. So these, when it says they begin to form their own history, and Alexander Mack Jr., Alexander Mack's son, obviously, began to form the first brethren history. And this history was based on some uh, documents and books written by a man, a pietist named Gottfried Arnold. And it was it, when Alexander Mack writes his history, he says it was based upon reliable histories. What were those reliable histories? Those books, those actual books right there. So that was really cool for us to be sitting there with like the very first brethren documents as well. Most of those were written by Gottfried Arnold. And the next picture right there, church, that is the very first brethren hymnal ever. <laughs> and of course it was in German, so you, know, you can't read it either. But it was like a half book there. And they never had music. They just had words. They never had music with their, um, with their lyrics. They just had the words there, and they would sing and, and, and make, the, make the words or make the music as needed. So, oh, where am I here? So next week, I, wanted, I will talk to you a little bit more about um, pietism itself, okay? I'm going to talk to you a little bit about uh, pietism um, the pursuit of the passion of pietism, what it was that they were wanting. I've just talked to you a little bit about it today. The pursuit, what it was they actually did, and the pinnacle, and basically why and how pietism ended. Um, so what began, what I just showed you in the Eater River, what began then by 1720 or 1719, I believe it is, uh, a guy named Peter Becker is moving um, the Germans, beginning to move groups over here to America and to settle in Pennsylvania. So that is, if you haven't noticed, that's before America was a country itself. It was still the English colonies at that time. And that's when the brethren began to come over here to America. And so that's what that Alexander Mack Museum, if you go back a slide, Nick, or two slides, that is what that um, is commemorative of. This was kind of the launching pad. They kind of looked at it and explained how and why they left. And so that's what's really significant about the Alexander Mack Museum. Now, so before I close, I just want to share a few things with you. And if you've, if, if some of this has become a bit perplexing to you, if you're paying attention to the pattern here, there's this pattern of reformation and comfort in church history. Martin Luther and John Calvin and Ehrlich Zwingli 
fought really hard for reformation in the church. But what did I share with you that just 200 years later, after all their fighting was over, what did the churches that they fought for, what did they become? The same thing that he was fighting against. And there's this consistent history of, of reformation to comfort. What happens, when, what, what happens when the church is now accepted? What happens now when those who have fought before us and now we have freedom, the freedom that was so hard and often fought for in the history of the church, it doesn't lead to growth. It leads to complacency. It leads to contentment. And it leads to people, the people that sit in the pews today with all the freedoms and all the resources they've been given to sit in complacency. And see, what's unique about the, the, the church in Germany is they still have those three state churches. They still, have the, they still have the Lutheran, they still have the Reformed, and they still have the Catholic, of course. Most of the time we visited the Lutheran church. They have free churches which are, which are not part of those. Uh, long story, I can maybe explain that to you if you're interested. But what is unique in Germany that I really was real encouraged about and I was excited about was that because they're state churches, if you want to be a member of a state church, you would tithe, and your tithe actually, the government would collect for you. That would come out of your taxes. So your tithe would actually come out of your taxes. So you would think that these churches wouldn't struggle for money that much, and really they don't, because you know what else happens? Is that when, so let's say you're a state church, let's say this is us and we're a state church, and we want to start a, prob- a program like Walter Landerer did for heroin addicts. If we have the qualified people that have some kind of credentials to be able to run a program, it is 100% funded by the state. So fundraising for a church is never an issue in Germany. Never an issue. They've always got what they need. Of course, unless you are a free church. Now, I say that because that excites me. It's like, imagine what it would be like if we just had a hunger for ministry. We want to make a ministry happen. It would be fully funded. We can make it happen really quickly. Now, that's exciting enough and encouraging to me. But what was devastating was to hear that Germany itself, with all of these state-funded free churches, is considered the third most secular nation in the world, next to North Korea and the Czech Republic. So once again, we see that same pattern. <laughs> With all the freedom in the world, the church in Europe, and this is what I had always heard before I ever went there, is still not thriving. They, uh, um, one of the reasons, so I told you, you're, you're, they have these churches, they'll have thousands of members, but they'll only see their members on Christmas and maybe Easter. And they'll have members that will tithe, they'll pay the taxes and everything, they still will never walk in the doors. So they still, there's still very much of a dead church in Europe with all the resources, in Germany, excuse me, with all the resources and all the opportunities that they have been given. And so I want to conclude with this simple verse that we shared last Sunday as well in Galatians 5, verses 13 through 26. And I don't know if you're tracking with me this morning, if this is causing you to think and it, it burdens you as much as it does me. That what happens when we're given, we, there's times when people have to fight hard 
to get a new level of freedom because the church has become too mechanical. And you see reformers happen, then they get what they want, and what they want just becomes more complacent and more mechanical as well, years and generations later. And so just as we read last Sunday on Memorial Day when we consider the freedoms that have been given to us as Americans, Galatians 5, 13 through 15 says this, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. And if you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. You think of just how incredibly profound these verses are, because this is often what this is the warning that we are given with freedom, because with great freedom comes great responsibility. And it's what we use the word responsibility because history keeps repeating itself. And it is your responsibility. It was my responsibility to not let history repeat itself again. To realize that others have fought for the religious freedom in the church and in our country for what we have here today. And will we allow that freedom to bring complacency or will we allow it to bring the passion in life that the first pietists fought for? There's one big takeaway that I got from being in Germany that I'll share next Sunday night when we go to Christian community. But there's a second one that's, that's number two. The one biggest takeaway I'll share next Sunday night, and the number two for me is this. Is that doing a compare and contrast in other countries that have been in El Salvador and Mexico, even Canada for that matter. In America, we certainly do take a lot of things for granted. So let us just ask this question. Could you raise your hand with me and ask, have you ever taken something for granted before? Any chance that you're taking something for granted right now as you sit here? So I want to close this service by having us all close our eyes in this moment. Now, Lord, as we sit here, I, I, I pray all of us would search our hearts and recognize all it is that we have been given, that which has been fought for before us, and that we have a responsibility with our faith that it not just be something that we observe on a Sunday morning, but a calling that we live. And so all across this room, I pray that we would find our own moment of confession as we recognize the things that we have taken for granted, that we are even taking for granted right now. So forgive me, Lord. Forgive us, Lord, for the times that we do not acknowledge you. For the life that you have placed right in front of us that you have called us to live in such a time as this. For the mission, the freedom, the empowerment that you have given us, but we find ways to become comfortable. We find ways to divide ourselves, to devour and, 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 and destroy one, of one another rather than, as the Galatians text says, love our neighbor as ourself. 
Forgive us, Lord, for being part of a pattern and often letting history repeat itself. Now, Lord, may we recognize that even in a moment like today, we have been given revelation so that we change. We get biblical revelation so that we can take steps out of this church and do something different in our life. And oftentimes in moments like this, I sense the revelation is just simply greater joy, greater peace, greater confidence in knowing that our God is with us and he's working with us, and a greater call and a greater focus upon the mission that we have been given the lives that you've called us to live. So Lord, this morning, awaken us to your call, and may we respond to it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.